On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Scott Thompson today, we're talking COVID. There's tons and tons of COVID news going on right now. All the news about the lockdowns and stay-at-home orders and state of emergency, all that stuff. Talking about that. We are going to be talking about the likelihood of a Canadian federal election now that there is a cabinet shuffle and why the cabinet shuffle happened. It seems like an election is looming. We're also going to talk about impeachment talks down in the States, which are going to be gearing up. What can happen? What's the purpose of why this will be happening? All coming up here on the Scott Thompson Show. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Then everyone can just say Scott and you get it right no matter what. Uh, thanks for being here. As I say, we got lots coming up. We, we started a little late today because of the press conference, but uh, again, a lot in that press conference that um, that was information, that was in- important information, I mean, and valuable and worth hearing. And I want to dive down into some of those things a little bit. Uh, Dr. Colin Furness is Assistant Professor at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. He joins us now. Dr. Furness, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Good afternoon. Uh, a lot of, as I say, a lot of things I want to ask you about and and get into. But you know, the the to me, as I listen to that, the overriding question becomes: you know, there's lots of questions about whether or not government should create more lockdowns or f- whatever. But it seems as though the underlying thing here is: if people just followed the rules, we wouldn't be in this mess. I think that's what. I've been hearing today during during the press conference, but I need to push back. In September, Mr. Ford was talking about opening up. In October, Mr. Ford was talking about opening up. In November, he was talking about opening up. And our chief medical officer of health said he thought we'd all be in the green zone for Christmas time. So we've had messaging throughout this really critical period as the second wave got going in September that was just flew in the face of reality and said, let's go, let's fly, let's, let's go to restaurants, let's do all this stuff because we should. That's what the government was telling people. So now what we're hearing is, well, people didn't listen to the rules. They didn't reduce the mobility. Well, they did, they did precisely what they were being told. The problem is they were being told to ignore the fact that we were in a second wave. And they listened. So I think it's, it's, this is, this is, the situation we're in right now is incredibly frustrating simply because I think it would have been really avoidable. Most people will do as they're told. The problem is they were being told to do really dangerous things. Well, okay, and I, I'll, I'll push back a little bit with one follow-up then a little bit maybe because the numbers that we're seeing from across Canada are similar to those. In fact, there are places, you know, in Atlantic Canada and others where the numbers were even higher that people weren't following instructions. So, I, I mean, I, you're right, absolutely you're right about some of the mixed messaging. I'm just wondering if, if you think people were going to listen regardless. Well, I, you know, something we'll never know. No question. No question. But uh, to compare us to the Atlantic provinces and say, were we maybe not, are we maybe not doing so badly, I think is a problem. They've got very little COVID. Absolutely. They, they put really proactive restrictions in place. They haven't been talking about opening up. They've been talking about being cautious and being careful. Totally different discourse. And it's been very effective. 
Uh, and anytime we look at, uh, anywhere we look, where COVID has been managed really well globally, there have been a few things in common, which is acting proactively, limiting travel, limiting the kinds of risky behaviors that lead to wide, widespread COVID. So I think the, the outcome here is really predictable and it's predicated on policy. There's always going to be people who don't listen. There's always going to be people who put everyone else at risk. But I think what we have in Ontario is, is really much worse than that, much more systematic than that. We, I think, assumed that probably um, knowing people were not necessarily going to follow all the rules around Christmas holiday time, uh, I think most people assumed there would be a bump after the holidays, and there is. Um, but two weeks later, um, we're now out of that Christmas holiday time. We're into the period where we should see that bump. The numbers are still going up. Does that say anything that lockdown about lockdowns, about the effectiveness of lockdowns? Because I would have thought, and I think a lot of other people, once that bump is over and people get back to some sort of normal following the rules behavior, if they are, it would go down. It's not happening. Yeah, that's unfortunately not how communicable disease works. It, it doesn't settle down on its own. It keeps increasing on its own. So if you let it increase for a little bit, it's really you're pushing a snowball downhill and saying, okay, we've given the snowball a really good push downhill. We're not pushing anymore. It should slow down. No, it's not. It's going to keep on going unless you then take more extreme action. So I think it's, it's the, the pattern here I think is really predictable and really predictable to the point that I think I was on the record as early as October describing what was going to happen in January. And I, I kept saying, I really hope I'm wrong. Unfortunately, I'm pretty much bang on. That mm. is to say, an expectation that there wouldn't be the political will to really uh, close things down when we needed to in December, and that would result in, in things spiraling out of control in January. The big problem with lockdowns is we don't actually do them. We just use the word. Um, mobility is really high now. It's really high just as it was in the summer. So we've put people out of work. We've caused huge economic harm. We've caused chaos. But we haven't actually locked down, and that's the problem. So it's not that lockdowns don't work. It's that we haven't actually done what we really need to do. And the, I guess the other piece along with that is, by the way, lockdowns are not the only tool that we could be using. Lockdowns cause a great deal of harm. We can use testing to control transmission. And this, is, this has been demonstrated in many different places how easy and effective this is to do. But as a province, we have said we won't do it. We won't test. We won't go looking for cases. 1% of the population has COVID right now. We're not going to look for that 1%. We're going to lock down the other 99. It doesn't make sense to me. So in, in addition to doing really ineffective lockdowns, we're not doing the one thing that I think could really make a big difference. Explain, okay, for that one thing, for the testing, how, in a utopia, in, in a perfect scenario, maybe utopia is not the right word, if we were doing this right, how would we do it? What would that look like? Well, back in the fall when we had schools open, we would have tested kids. And we still don't think there's a lot of transmission going on in schools. But every time you find an infected child, you know that you have an infected family. So there's a long history of public health being present in schools. Uh, and this time we opened up schools and decided to keep public health out of it, which I think is a, is a really grotesque mistake. So we could have been actually ensuring that schools were safe and at the same time identifying infected families in the community that aren't reaching out, that aren't going. They're sending their kids to school, but they're actually not reaching out themselves and going and getting themselves tested 
tested. So I think that would have been a really easy one. The other things we can do is go to workplaces that we know are high risk, we know where COVID spreads, and start to start to do proactive testing there, not because people look sick and can't breathe, but because they're at high risk of having COVID. We could have been doing that. We could be doing it demographically because we know what the demographics of COVID look like, and also geographically, going door to door where we need to. So there's a lot of proactive going out and looking for cases that we haven't done. And every case you find that's asymptomatic, you are eliminating dozens, hundreds, and then eventually thousands of cases downstream. So that's where we have failed. You mentioned schools um, and younger people. Uh, There was a a graph that was included in the modeling that was handed out just an hour or so ago uh, that I, quite frankly, sort of stunned me when I saw these numbers, and I didn't even think they could be correct at first. And um, it's going, they keep track month by month, day by day of age groups and what the numbers are of positivity by age group. Uh, End of December, those in the um, let's say four years old to 17 years old were not crazy. They were, you know, six, eight, nine percent. They've now gone up to 19 percent. Those nine to 13 have a 19.2 percent positivity by age group number that's attached to them. If I'm reading this right, then that means one in five people, nine to 13, has COVID. That, that, th- those numbers are crazy. Um, it's one in five people who got tested who have COVID. Who got tested, course, but even it's a triggering event to test people. So it's not across the population, but just across those who were tested. One problem is is that we have been a little bit sanguine about kids, saying, "Well, they're not that infective," and there's there's a lot of data from around the world suggesting that. So let's not test them. So they've actually been an under-tested, under-investigated group. At the same time, whether schools are open or closed, kids get together over the holidays. They get together with multi-generational uh, in multi-generational instances. And they hang out with each other at recess and beyond. So there's a lot of social interaction in that group, multi-generation and close quarters with each other. And so that's why I think when you add all that together, particularly the fact that we didn't do much testing with them before, didn't really take it seriously. So that, that has ballooned kind of under our noses. And, and yeah, that, I, I looked at that graph and that was, that was pretty stark, I have to admit, quite, quite disturbing. And is that number then... Um, because if you're an older person, I mean, 75 plus, the number is 5.3. Tell me I'm wrong here if I'm I'm assuming something, but I'm guessing a lot of people who would be a little bit older, if they have any symptoms whatsoever, are rushing to get tested. Whereas if you're a kid or, you know, the parent of a young kid who has a stuffy nose or whatever the symptoms are, you're probably not necessarily thinking it's COVID, so you're less likely to race out and get one of these tests done. Therefore, less people being tested, higher percentage. I think you've described it perfectly. I think that is that is absolutely what's going on. Also, folks in their 70s are far more likely to take COVID seriously. They're far more likely to be frightened. They're far more likely to be careful. I've got neighbors who think it's a great idea to have all the kids over in the basement watching movies, no social distancing, no precautions, nothing. Because to them, this seems per- like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. You wouldn't see a bunch of 75-year-olds in the basement watching movies together without masks. So it, you, you, you get very, very different attitudes around what the danger looks like. And, and part of that is the, the general impression that kids are really impervious to this. Well, they don't suffer serious effects so much, but they're not impervious, and they certainly can be sources of spread. You know, I, I'm going to ask you about this. Social media is not a good place to go to get uh, advice about anything, certainly. <laughs> and no one is going to suggest it is. But I've seen a lot of people lately saying, look, if you're going to break the rules, if you're not going to follow the advice you're given, and you get this, I don't feel all that sorry for you. It's very cold. It's very callous. 
Um, is that going to be something we're going to be dealing with, though, as this goes along, that people are going to start pointing at other people and say, look, you broke the rules. Why should I feel sorry for you for now having this? It's a, it's a tough one. I think in public health, shaming individuals backfires and is, is really problematic. Shaming behaviors, however, can be very useful. I would like to see travel right now in the same category as drinking and driving, something that you would not do because you would not want to be seen doing it because it's selfish and reckless and dangerous and all these things. So I'd like to see the behaviors, the normative sense of what's okay. I'd really like to see more, more discussion of that. Where it's really going to get real, though, is when we get into tree medicine next month and that that looks like where we're going where you've got people lined up in the hospital there's not enough beds there's not enough ventilators and we need to decide who gets medical care and who doesn't and you know it's not like everyone's going to have a tattoo on their forehead saying i went to hawaii i had people over for christmas dinner but we are going to see who are perhaps essential workers who actually have very few levers who are vulnerable structurally and then we can see those who aren't and i wonder whether triage might take some of that into account that's ethically, it's a morass. It's really difficult, and it's above my pay grade to, to, to call what I think is a good thing or not. But the, the triage is going to bring, the need to triage, and the need to make decisions about who gets medical care and who doesn't. That's going to be a very, very ugly scene. Yeah, I, 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 this, I mean, it's a bit of a branch off, but I remember watching a documentary some time ago about the Ethiopian famine in the mid-80s, and they were talking to a nurse who was working in the feeding centers, and they didn't have enough food, and so she essentially was playing God, having to decide who are the people who have the best chance of survival, therefore we're going to give them food. I don't. It's not a, a great example necessarily, but in some ways you may have nurses and doctors who have to play that role of deciding who gets the care. That, as you say, that's a, that is a very, very ethically troubling area to start venturing into. I think it's going to cause a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder among healthcare workers. I think uh, you, I don't think you could pay me enough to be in that position. I think that would haunt me for life. And it looks like it's coming next month. I don't see anything in the provincial plans to head this off. Um, a curfew might have worked, maybe worth trying, given the desperate situation. But we've ruled that out. We've ruled out acting quickly. So we're we're hurtling toward triage medicine, and it is going to be it, 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 it's 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 going to be scarring. The fact now that this information has come out and that uh, hopefully people have been listening, hopefully they're listening now, hopefully they'll follow up and read something, it, it, that this may be enough of a scare. If it is enough of a scare and people now say, you know what, okay, I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to do those things that I was sort of flippantly doing before. Is that enough now to change the behavior or is it too late? I wouldn't say too late. We can always make changes, but I think um, imagining that people are going to have a conscience all of a sudden, look at these numbers and that that'll be enough, I think that's a little bit naive. Um, I'm not a proponent of lockdowns as sort of the first thing to go because uh, uh, to go to because they cause so much harm. But I think we painted ourselves into a corner where it's going to have to get really severe along with enforcement. We saw this happen in northern Italy. We saw it happen in New York City. We know what it looks like if you let if you let COVID get the upper hand, and that's where we're going. So I think I think we're going to require more than people that what, what they say is the one third of people who are not really taking COVID particularly seriously. I think we're going to need more than just some hope that those one-third uh, get a little bit woke here. It's, it's, it's going to take, I think, some pretty extreme measures, and I, I say that without any enthusiasm at all. 
What about the vaccine? I mean, there are people saying, well, the vaccine is being given now, so surely as long as that continues to happen, we should be able to head this off or at least cut back on the number of people susceptible. We're losing that race. Um, and that is because even though the vaccine has come sooner than we expected, sooner than we had any right to expect, uh, it's not nearly fast enough. We would need to be doing 100,000 jabs a day in Ontario in order to get to a safe place for September. September is still eight months away, and we could see uh, staggering, staggering mortality and collapse of our healthcare system within weeks. So if you line up those two timelines, it doesn't work. The more jabs we can get done, especially among those who are most vulnerable, the better. But that's not going to do anything to eliminate the situation we're in now, not for the next several months. We've heard a lot lately about this mutation. Um things would things have been as bad or has this accelerated it considerably because what we're hearing about it is that it creates an easier transmission if that had not come along would this be something we would have been able to deal with easier or was it going to be the same regardless essentially the the number of as far as we know the number of what i call the air canada strain because that's where we got it from the, the the contagious variant is not very prevalent in ontario yet so it actually isn't responsible for what we're dealing with right now however it's now factored into the projections and that's what makes the projections really scary so it's it's contagious enough it's not more dangerous it'll be susceptible to the vaccine but it's going to cause so many more cases that overwhelms our healthcare system that drives up mortality, and it also means we'll need to vaccinate a greater proportion of the population to get herd immunity. So reaching that September target of herd immunity becomes less doable. So that's a, that's a, a really, really big problem. And every time a plane lands, expect more of the variant. So the fact that we only have a few cases now is going to get worse every day with every plane that lands, and that's should really that, concerning to me. Should that be something we're doing? I mean, way back when this whole thing started, there was a debate about whether we should be stopping all pl- flights from coming in or out, and it was you know people had different opinions governments had different opinions is that something we should be addressing now or is the horse out of the barn well i think some of the horses are out of the barn but it's not too late to close the door i think the sooner we ground planes this the more we will slow down the variant if we're if we go back to that idea of a race between covid spreading and our vaccination programs anything we can do to slow down transmission gives us a gives us a bit of an edge and uh i hear people i get a lot of hate mail around this i hear people saying flying is a right uh this is a democratic society i can judge for myself what the risk is they're really missing the point every plane that lands is killing ontarians there's no question it's not killing them yet it'll take a a few weeks or a few months but the the situation is really dire we we need to stop air travel we should have stopped air travel predominantly last last spring we stopped some of it we needed to stop more and we also need to define what essential travel is i mean we've been really really loose about that people get to decide for themselves what essential travel is and that's not working we only have a, se- a few seconds left here. One more thing, and we, we were talking about the vaccine. Um, Angus Reid did some polling on this in the last few days, and uh, back in November, only four in ten Canadians said they were interested in getting the vaccine with any haste. They, I mean, they wanted to wait and see. Now it suddenly has shot up to six in ten, and I expect that probably that number is going to go up. Does that affect anything that's being done here that you've got a population that at first was very skeptical and all of a sudden now has flipped and seems to be saying, no, no, get it to me and get it to me right now. Well, I'm glad that trend is happening. I'm not surprised. I think back in November, there was a lot of political talk about pressure to approve and things felt very unsafe. People's people's sense of risk is 
not particularly rational. So the vaccine looked risky. Now hospitals and emergency rooms and COVID looks more risky. And so I expect that the vast majority of Canadians are going to want to get that jab by the time we see the worst of this. Uh, really appreciate the uh, the time today. That is uh, fascinating stuff. A lot of uh, a lot of information. A lot of it a little bit frightening. Uh, Dr. Colin Furness, Assistant Professor at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. So, how do we do at Christmas time? I don't mean getting gifts. We hopefully you know hopefully that all went well and whatever else. But how do we do as far as following the instructions? Because every government that I can think of urged people to stay home. Don't go to other family unless you're a single person living alone. You can go to one other place. You know, you know what you heard the rules. How did we do? Well, uh, Ipsos polling looked into this over the last number of days and, um, well, found out we we didn't do all that well, quite honestly, uh, 48% of Canadians saw people outside of their household over the holidays, and as the kicker, the majority of them did not wear masks. Hmm. Hmm. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Polling. He joins us now. Daryl, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, look, I, I'm I'm as ready as the next guy to take a shot at governments for things that they screw up. Um but as you point out in your intro and in your polling, um, governments all across the country, provincial, federal, whatever, urged people to not go out with family and stay home. And um, they apparently didn't do it. They didn't listen by the looks of it. No, they didn't. Uh, you know, 48% of the people we interviewed, so every second person that you probably walked by in the office today, probably broke through on some of uh, some of the directions that they were given. Now, granted, you know, one person visiting one person or social bubbles would be exceptions uh, to that, but that only accounts for a portion of, uh, of the 48% who, uh, who mix with other people. Including a number of politicians and uh, public officials and whatever else who, um, you know, under normal circumstances, they probably get just a, uh, a sour look from people. I'm not sure that's just, I'm, I'm not sure it stops there now. I, I think with all that this is, with everything going on, I think this may be a lot worse for them than they anticipated. Yeah, no, it really is. And, and the reason is when you lock people up for the period of 10 months and then, you know, implore them to do certain things during the holidays and then choose to do exactly the opposite yourself, don't be surprised if you're um, uh, really punished by the public when they find out. There's a, a, the one thing that people cannot stand in politics is hypocrisy. Mm. Well, and, and I'm wondering when you look at these numbers, and, and there are some sub numbers, and we'll get to some of these numbers within the polling, but still 48% is 48%. I'm wondering if this, in your mind, uh, indicates some level of fatigue with this whole thing with government, we'll call it government instruction fatigue that I'm, you know what, I'm done with it. I'm just going to do what I think I need to do. Well, I think it's a combination of two things. I think one of them is that people really are fed up. I mean, polling that we did before the holidays uh, with Global News showed that, uh, you know, 48% here say that they did something. Well, about half the people that we interviewed said that they just about had it. Uh, they were struggling with mental health issues. They were lonely. There were all sorts of things that were happening. So uh, it, the, the lockdown was, was, was having its effect. Uh, the other thing is that people hear these instructions, but they don't translate them into how they uh, – they need to necessarily behave. So it's someone else. It, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it, for example, when you take a look at the data on this, what you see is that uh, uh, 
85%, actually, it's, uh, eight, yeah, 85% of the people who, uh, among that 48%, said that what they did will not contribute to the spread of, of COVID. Hmm. Uh, so they believe that they were okay to do what they were doing because it wasn't going to cause something, even though what they were doing might have been contrary to what they were directed to do. You mentioned, though, the fatigue and the, you know, people are at the end of the rope with this. Uh, it does make me wonder, yes, we've had this information today and we're going to get the premier at the bottom of the hour with his follow-up and comments on what we've learned today, which is pretty frightening and pretty dire and pretty stark. Uh, and maybe that will scare people into changing their behavior. On the other hand, as you say, if you're at the end of your rope already and we've still got two or three months of winter, uh, I, I I wonder what things are going to be like if you do this poll again in two months, if the number is going to be higher than 48%. Yeah, there's going to there's be issues on that. And, and, you know, frankly, even on this poll, we saw 27% of the, the people that we interviewed saying the government shouldn't be telling them what to do. So, uh, you know, there, this is going to be a very interesting race over the next while uh, between the public's tolerance for being locked up, the number of cases uh, that, uh, that uh, occur and what that, how that affects the health system versus the amount of vaccine that we get access to and in what time period. So there's going to be a, you know, a whole race going on among all of these things to see if we can get this thing under control, we can get people vaccinated, and we can do it before we either um, uh, you know, are no longer tolerate being locked up or overwhelm our health care system. I, I said a moment ago, there were numbers within the numbers. And to be fair, uh, some of the 48% were individual, single people living alone who met up yeah. with one family. That That is within, that was in within the rules for some of these places. So the 48%, there, there are explanations for at least some of those people. Yeah, there is. And, and But then again, you take a look at it and you say, particularly among younger people, where they, they reported a higher incidence of actually visiting with more than one family. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when you add it all up, I mean, you can make exceptions and you can, you, can, you can talk about what the actual incidence of the behavior is. But I think the overall finding would be that there was a lot more of, of people interacting um, through the holidays than, than we were advised was wise. Well, let's talk about young people since you bring that up. And look, we don't want to be the uh, dump on the millennials uh, thing here but or less, but the biggest numbers from your polling who seem to ignore the rules completely, if we're talking about an age group, was Gen Z, so early 20s and younger. Um, surprising to you or expected if, that, if there was going to be a group? No, I expected. Um, there, there's uh, two things going on. They're the ones who are suffering the most when it comes to social isolation. So we've seen that reported repeatedly in the surveys that we've been asking on this. The second thing is that there is a certain belief that they're more immune to what's going on, that even if they get it, they won't be as affected. I mean, that's information that's coming out from uh, from our healthcare professionals. So when you take a look at the actual rise in cases that's taking place right now, you're seeing it's disproportionately among young people. So what they're telling us on the polls is, is, is actually what they're living. It would make sense if most, if way more of them were out at Christmas uh, with other people. The numbers that we've now we're now seeing, we talked about it last segment, shooting up. It, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the interesting thing here. I mean, you all of these things just when like when you do an election poll and you say people are going to vote in a certain way. When you do a poll like this and you find out how people say that they're going to uh, uh, they're going to behave, don't be surprised when they actually do it. 
All right, you mentioned election now. Let's keep moving. You're 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 doing a great job leading this conversation. I got to oh. tell you. Um, uh, let's talk about election because there's a lot of things I found really interesting, but there was something in particular that I found totally fascinating in this. Um, people often will um, associate conservatives, small C conservatives, with sort of blanching at government control and small C, small L liberals as being maybe more okay with some government control. Yet Atlantic Canada, which is, if you look at the electoral map, entirely red, according to your numbers, was most likely to ignore government instruction and visit other people outside their homes over Christmas. And those in the prairies in Alberta, which was entirely blue, which you would think maybe the ones to say to the government, you know, screw you, I'm doing whatever, they were the most likely to stay home. It was the opposite of what I would have expected. Yeah, and that's the, that's the effect of the Atlantic Canadian bubble. Right, so there is a belief in Atlantic Canada that, uh, supported by the statistics, by the way, in terms of the number of cases and uh, what's going on in their healthcare system, uh, that suggests that their Atlantic Canadian bubble is actually creating a different experience for them and a different set of risks for them compared to the rest of the country. So people are living according to that, uh, according to how they see the, that, that information. So yeah, among the the, uh, the people in, in Canada who are most likely to uh, go out and visit. It was, it was people in Atlantic Canada. It's, uh, yeah. And, and look, they have had success for sure. Um, I say, I was just, I was surprised politically because it's kind of the opposite of what you would expect. Certainly there's an explanation for it when, when you talk about that bubble, Alberta and the prairies though, maybe surprised me a little more because, you know, they don't have the bubble. They've had some problems and yet their fault, they seem to be following the instructions better than anybody. Yeah, there is this, uh, um, you know, belief that what uh, we're all of the, um, I guess, butting up against the rules is, is going to be strongest is in a place like Alberta. And normally, you would you would think that they they tend to bridle more against government authority. But if you want to find the people who are having the hardest time with all of this and are tending to, you know, color outside the lines, I would say you need to go a lot further east, and that's to Atlantic Canada, but also adding Quebec. And I I can't recall now the numbers off the top of my head. Did they follow the rules or no? Uh, less likely to follow the rules, and, and, okay. and but we've seen this very typically in, in in all of the research, and it's and it's one of the reasons that you see the case uh, uh, case count in Quebec is going up the way that it's going up, uh, and and you know as I said, there's a there's a correlation between what people report that they're going to do or how closely they feel they're following the rules, and then what follows up in the actual case data. You mentioned a few moments ago. Um the fact that many people didn't really feel, I think you said 85% didn't feel that what they did was going to lead to any further problems. They weren't having an effect. Basically there was no guilt about this maybe is the, uh, the cleanest way to say it. Um, do you expect that to change at all now that again, we are seeing numbers in those age groups, in those groups going up. Do you expect to see that to change or when you do polling of certain age groups, whether it's this or other things, is there a, a chasm between cause and effect for those age groups? Yeah, I think it, it applies generally. It's not so much just in terms of age. It's, it, it's people in right now, uh, if you went out and you asked the public, do you know somebody who's actually been infected by COVID? Well, that number's gone up quite a bit over the space of the last 10 months, but it's still not even people uh, saying that, you know, it's 90% or somebody in my household or whatever. It's even much, 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 much lower uh, for, for deaths. So people see COVID right now as something that's out there rather than something that is in here. So it's not something that is in my house. 
And as a result of that, I'm not going to be somebody who spreads it. So maybe those rules apply to the other people, but they don't apply to me because I don't have it. Nobody I know has it. Uh, Nobody that I know who has had it has died. Uh, It it all kind of adds up to a a, a distancing between the problem uh, that is actually being experienced more generally and what very many people feel is actually happening in their own lives. Hmm. Daryl, I don't think you asked this question. I don't know if you are going to ask this question down the road, but do you have any um, guess and that's the, probably the best right now. Um, we're, we're at a position now where we're not only asking people to stay home, but in some ways, you know, there are now bylaws, there are rules. We in Quebec with the curfew and everything, you could be asking neighbors to rat out or just, you know, report. That's probably the nicer way of saying it. Report neighbors who are having gatherings or having people over. Do, do you believe that Canadians a majority of small minority, a big majority would turn in a neighbor these days with this going on, who was doing something illegal, or do you think generally we would keep our mouth shut? Uh, That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, definitely something that we're going to be asking in the future. And I think it it would also depend on, you know, who we're talking about. If it's somebody that they saw as a, like a front care worker, putting a lot of people at risk, they might have another uh, point of view uh, as opposed to, you know, somebody who just uh, happened to have a couple of people come over to sit out back. I mean, uh, it, it, there's there's probably conditions that are applied to that. But uh, as this thing goes goes on, uh, I think that a lot of these human interaction questions, in a really fundamental way, are are, are going to be tested. Hmm. Uh, fascinating stuff from Ipsos polling. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to change tack a little bit um, because the Trudeau government is shuffling its cabinet, sort of. It's not exactly a huge, giant, sexy cabinet shuffle. There's a few people moving around and not necessarily in the biggest, most widely paid attention to positions. Nonetheless, nonetheless, it is a cabinet shuffle and... um, it's those who it's a number of people who are not going to be seeking re-election being moved aside for some who will be seeking re-election. And if all of a sudden your spidey senses are tingling, I'm guessing there's a good reason for that. Let me bring in Michael Tobe, Troy media syndicated columnist, Washington times contributor, Michael, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? Uh, listen, I'm do- well, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm sitting here just wrapping my head around everything we've just heard, but yes, doing okay. Um, let's see, uh, moving people out of cabinet who aren't going to run again, mm-hmm. uh, decent approval ratings, uh, a polling lead over other parties. Gosh, could we possibly be thinking about calling an election? <laughs> yeah, I think there's no question of that. Um, even though a cabinet shuffle doesn't always necessarily mean or preclude a, a, an election, a forthcoming election, I think it's pretty clear here based on the fact of what you've discussed. You know, we don't have to go through all the people, but although mostly the major or senior cabinet positions were not really shuffled, although foreign affairs certainly does count in that regard, and that was shuffled, where Mark Garneau is now the new minister, um, it's quite clear that the Liberals are trying to shift out a few of their cabinet ministers, MPs, and others who are not going to be running, and that includes Navdeep Baines, who's already announced that he's not going to run in the next federal election, whenever that is. And the fact that the polling numbers are very high right now for 
Justin Trudeau, not necessarily in majority government territory, but in a comfortable position that they might be willing to roll the dice and see what happens. Um, I think you're looking at something probably in the late spring, I would guess. Uh, I mean, I know that obviously Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, came out and said that everything connected here has nothing to do with an early election call or an election call in general. Yeah, but I think yeah. you have to be realistic about it. If you follow politics long enough, and I followed it more than half my life, I think it's pretty clear that they are, at least if nothing else, gearing up for a federal election, even if in the end they don't call it. Right. Like it, it, often a cabinet shuffle will be because a cabinet minister has screwed up or something's not going right or you want to freshen it up. This is right. clearly, they've said it. It's for people who are not going to run again. Well, that, you know, like they may as well just have a flashing banner that says spring election, spring election. <laughs> and, and I wonder, Michael, if that's the case. Is this a cynical move to do this at a time we've just had this announcement of all the stuff that we're in a lockdown, we're in a state of emergency, and now potentially we are going to go into an election campaign? Or is this a brilliant move to say, listen, nobody can nobody can campaign and our numbers are pretty good, so hey, let's jump on it now? Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on your perspective, you know, flashing banners aside. Um, I think that in the end, ultimately, there will be a number of Canadians that will look at this as brilliant, but those will be their loyal supporters. The rest of us will look at it as cynical because do we really need to have a federal election right now when we're going into year two of COVID-19 and reports coming out, not just in Ontario, but across the country and across the world, that the second wave of this pandemic is going to be worse than the first in terms of the number of active COVID-19 cases, the number of deaths, the new variant that now exists, which is obviously spread to close to 50 countries by now, and, and the numbers are starting to slowly increase in our country. The answer is, yeah, I think you have to look at this as a bit of a cynical move, but politics is also built on cynicism, Scott. Mm. And I really think that a prime minister right now who has fairly decent approval numbers, you know, has basically created a bit of a shift in this cabinet to put some star people in higher positions, even if they're not the top senior roles, and then pushing out others who have already suggested to him that they're not going to run again. He's probably looking at it as whether it's cynical or not, you know, whether it's the right move or not. Everything is, at least the barometer, is pointing in his general direction. So why shouldn't he do it? Because anyone else in that position, be it a conservative prime minister, NDP prime minister, etc., would do the same thing. And inherently, that's correct. And you just said a second ago, to, in a, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but nothing is accidental in politics. And perhaps this is this cabinet shuffle is too small a sample size to be digging too far into it. But I did notice that two of the three ministers getting promoted are from Quebec. The other is from Mississauga. When Christia Freeland was made finance minister a few months ago, it was a Francophone member who replaced her as minister of intergovernmental affairs. Right. Um, the Bloc Québécois did huge damage to their majority hopes last time. Is this an accident? No, no. I mean, everything in politics is intentional in its own way. And I'm not saying that they necessarily targeted eight people from a particular region and picked six, so to speak, which is not obviously what happened today. But yes, I mean, you always look at your cabinet and you try to determine where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. And in the case of weaknesses, you try to improve it to your political advantage, either now or in the future. So what was done here was not terribly surprising. And you're right, the Bloc Québécois did very well in the 2019 federal election and basically came back from the dead, so to speak, and is now, at least if nothing else, 
a major player in politics again. You know, maybe it'll end in the next election, maybe in two elections time. But as of right now, they're a force in Quebec yet again. And most of the ministers who were shuffled, mostly just around to different positions or in different positions, with the one exception, I guess, to be fair, being Jim Carr, who's based out west in Manitoba, um, the, the, all these moves were basically done to fill in gaps that the Liberal government believes they have right now and to give Prime Minister Justin Trudeau an advantage whenever he does drop the writ, so to speak. So, yes, I think a lot of it was strategic, but again, you know, whether you like Justin Trudeau and the Liberals or you don't, and I'm in the latter camp, it's not surprising that he did this. We, I wish we had a lot more time, Michael. It's been a weird day. and uh, But just one more thing before we let you go, and again, I, I wish we could do a lot more. Um, at some point, I mean, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars has been spent on COVID. At some point, every economist says the cost of this is going to kick in. It's going to start taxes or right. interest rates or whatever. It, there's going to come a moment when this is felt by Canadians. Is it better to run an election and have an election and try and win a majority before that impact hits? I guess. I mean, that would make obvious sense. Let's do it while everyone's feeling shell-shocked, but not economically shell-shocked. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Your position is correct. Um, You always want to be in a position of strength when something like this happens. And right now, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are in a minority government situation, and it's been that way since 2019. They obviously want to improve or enhance their standing and add a number of seats so that they actually climb above majority status so that they can deal with things like this. And you're quite right. There's obviously going to be, shall we say, a price to pay for any government that's in power around the world based on an enormous price tag that we're going to be paying due to the cost of COVID-19, emergency relief measures, and various other things. Everybody knows that, you know, whether you're on the right, political right, political left, or center, everybody knows that everyone who's in power right now will have to deal with it. Now, some people are cynical and say that, well, then shouldn't they let the writ drop now and get out of government and let the next government deal with it? That's one way to look at it. But on the other hand, you also have to look at it from a position of strength. And what Justin Trudeau and the Liberals would be probably saying is, look, we've managed this country through the pandemic. We've done our best. We introduced lots of emergency relief measures that helped individuals, businesses, etc. Again, this is looking from their perspective. So we want to finish the job. We want to ensure that all these programs are preserved, that our positions are protected, and we want to have a majority government so we can push them through. It's realistic because... When Doug Ford, you know, comes up for re-election in Ontario, he will do the same thing. Scott Mullen, Saskatchewan, Jason Kenney in Alberta, and everybody else. And obviously, each strategy will be a little bit different, Scott, but the same rational theory is in play. I started this, that being the premier or prime minister in this case. I want to be the one who finishes it and hopefully reaps the benefits, gets the glory, etc., recognizing that obviously there were lots of bumps and hiccups along the way. So I think that's actually quite realistic that a prime minister, in this case Justin Trudeau, or any political leader would want to do it. Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor. Thanks, as always, for the time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Articles of impeachment have apparently already been drawn up and proceedings may begin, will begin this week to try and remove Donald Trump from the presidency in the last days of that presidency. Thane Rosenbaum is a legal analyst for CBS News who joins us now. Thane, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. By the time this could possibly be done, 
there may be just 150 or 120 hours left in Donald Trump's presidency makes me wonder, and I think a lot of people too, is this, is this a protective move entirely or is this a punitive move entirely or some sort of combination? Well, it can't be protective because the impeachment by itself would not remove the president. It, at the most, it would simply impeach him. As we've learned in prior impeachments, presidents retain their office until they are convicted in the Senate trial. We've never had that happen. We've had a number of impeachments, but we've never actually convicted a president, nor did we do so with President Trump uh, last year in the Senate trial. <laughs> so the question then is, okay, if you can rush through an impeachment, which would be rushed, because normally, I mean, Congress has the right to create any rules it wishes for each impeachment. They could change the rules every single time. But normally, you know, it, it, Congress is a deliberative body, so you would expect them to deliberate. Uh, you, you, you know, the Judiciary Committee comes back with factual determination, legal foundation for bringing this impeachment resolution. So clearly it's based on, you know, a punitive measure, because it's clear that he, the president, will not be removed unless he voluntarily resigns. Uh, according to the 25th Amendment, or he is removed according to the 25th Amendment. It's very unlikely that the Senate could actually conduct a trial between now and Inauguration Day. One of the reasons I ask, and thank you for the good answer, and I think it answers a lot of things, but one of the things, the reason I ask is, presumably if you're going to do something like this, it's to try to bring the temperature down, the political temperature down, Um by removing or at least chastising, convicting the person who was seen by many as the accelerant, I'm just wondering if that does that or if it actually inflames more anger and creates a bigger problem. I, I, you know, I'm a legal analyst, not a political analyst, but I'm with you, Scott. <laughs> uh, you know, I look at this and say, no matter what you do, there's still 75 million voters out there who really, really are loyal to this president. Uh, and we continue to fundamentally underestimate the level of affection that they have. The vast, 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 vast majority of those people, of course, were not in the Capitol building <laughs> ransacking the place. Uh, of the 100,000 or so that were uh, at the rally, they were, you know, they're allowed to be there. First Amendment right of assembly and association. Um, so, you know, for many of those voters, they don't see the president as having initiated, instigated this at all. In fact, I think they would say, this is what he, this is what he talks like. This is how he speaks to us. We've come to vet rallies for years. 10,000 of us, 10,000 of us will show up in the cold and we'll wait for him to entertain us with that sort of style. But we don't go off and riot and destroy things. So I just don't know, you know, I don't know what this is meant to accomplish. Um, but I know there are very strong feelings about it. Well, and the other question becomes then, and I think this has come up before, um, does this, if, if this happens, if they rush this through and they make it happen, does this then turn impeachment into just another political weapon? Because the pendulum, we know, Thane, we know the pendulum always swings, and someday there's going to be a Democratic president with a Republican House or Republican Senate. Does it just become now another tool to slap whoever, whichever president is in office? I agree, Scott. You know, the founding fathers of this country believed when they invoked the concept of removal of presidents through various different ways. 
whether it's done through later, uh, later uh, constitutional amendments or through the original founding documents. Um, however it is that those decisions are made, impeachment was a, an extraordinary remedy, right? It was not to be used every election. It's not expected to be used twice in the same four-year term, right? So that, you know, there seems to be a casualness with which, you know, of course, now, as you point out, what you don't want to do is set up a situation where it's no longer an extraordinary remedy, but it's normal course of business. When the other party takes office, you find a way to impeach their president, their, their person who's the commander in chief of the country. Again, I'm not, I'm not in any way excusing the president's behavior. I'm just saying, you know, impeachment where it's only a number of days away from when he's leaving and becoming a private citizen anyway, um, you know, I would say that you should be very careful about how often you use this extraordinary remedy because then it no longer becomes extraordinary, it becomes ordinary. Fascinating discussion. I wish we had more time, Thane, but really appreciate you jumping in today. Uh, Thane Rosenbaum, legal analyst for CBS News. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.